0: Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here of course with Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to turn today to a recent column you have in which you say that you'd prefer that Donald Trump not be the Republican presidential nominee but also that the Republican Party not write off his supporters. So let me start with the first part of that Donald Trump has sounded some themes that people who read or listen to you will be familiar with, the rejection of political correctness, the real dangers associated with illegal immigration. Now, he's done that in a fashion very different than yours. But there are at least a few sort of common touchstones. So why, in your judgment, should conservatives avoid him?
1: Well, because I think that his positions are of uh, recent he recently embraced them, and I'm I'm pretty sure that if we were to have this conversation in 2006 to 2008, we would agree that he's a pretty strong Hillary Clinton or even Barack Obama supporter. So I think he understood there was a void with the Republican candidates field, and that somebody who was the early front runner like a Jeb Bush, as he said, was quite correctly was low energy, and he saw space to get in there as a populist, a nationalist, a Jacksonian, as he's been called. And then he adopted these conservative things piecemeal. Every once in a while, he he lets on that he really isn't a conservative when he talks about eminent domain or he talks about uh, Social Security and, and, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to be worried about its financial stability. And when he talks about overseas... um, Involvement. He never tells anybody. He was a big supporter of the Iraq War, and then when it went south, he was um, an opportunistic critic. He even called for, I think, the impeachment of George Bush. And then when Obama, you know, took over that war, there was nobody really getting killed. There were fewer people dying in Iraq in 2009 than the accident rate in the military. In some months, nobody. And Obama, you remember, said it, he was re, leaving behind in December of 2011 a stable and secure Iraq. Obama, uh, Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, said it was their greatest achievement. And suddenly, uh, Trump now says that it was a stupid idea all along. But that's like saying the Korean War was very stupid had uh, Eisenhower pulled out in 56 and let the South Koreans' nascent government deal with the North. So... All that's a long explanation. I think he's an opportunist. And then he he's like Obama, uh, my view of him. Both of them seem to insult handicapped people. Obama says he makes fun of the Special Olympics. Trump makes fun of somebody that's handicapped. Both seem unaware of the world about them, whether Obama thinks the Maldive Islands are off or are the Falklands or that there's 57 states or people speak Austrian. Trump. Doesn't seem to know really the difference between Shia and Sunni and the f- various factions in Syria. So they're both ill-informed. It reminds me a great deal of Obama, especially the obsession with I, me, mine, and the vocabulary of narcissism, first-person narcissism. But I, I that said, <laughs> there <laughs> is some good things he's doing because he's, dem- he's making people exp- explicate themselves. And just because he's not a positive force doesn't mean that his negative force is not sometimes well-directed, as you pointed out. Well, so to on the, immigration, he created... Go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say, to that point, we're recording this a couple of days after the Iowa caucuses. Mm-hmm. Trump finished second yeah. there, barely ahead of Marco Rubio. Lower than expected, but still, as he's been keen on reminding everyone, quite an accomplishment in terms of the number of raw votes received. So at some level... It's worked, even if not necessarily on the scale he hoped for. There's a lot of punditry, Victor, a lot of theories of the case there. To what do you attribute the success he has had?
1: Well, Troy, let's just say that you and I are a Trump voter. I know a lot of them. And here's our worldview. There's a law that says people have to come in the United States illegally. We don't think there's a law that says they have to come in legally. They're coming in illegally. We don't want that. Calling us racist because we want the law enforced. They're the racist because, as I have written, if there was a million Russians crossing the border, Jorge Ramos would be outraged. But nobody listens to me because it still goes on, and the Republicans won't do anything about it. And their establishment icon, Jeb Bush, said it was an act of love. And then when we turn the corner and we talk about political correctness, and we see people, you know. Every one of – every public figure, whether it's Paula Dean or Duck Dynasty, is one gaffe away from, from uh, career implosion. But it doesn't seem to involve progressives. Harry Reid or Joe Biden can say the worst things about race and accent. So that voter is angry at the world that he sees. It doesn't make sense. He sees that Obama – is still very popular. He's 48 percent, which is per- amazing given that he borrowed $9 trillion after promising to half the debt, so half the annual deficit. And so they look at the world and they don't see any, I don't know, urgency to to combat that. They look at Obamacare. Their premiums have gone up. Their deductibles have gone up. Uh, their co-pays have gone up. Their coverage has gone down and, and they're angry about it and they don't see any – Anybody at least giving rhetorical support to their frustration. So they look at Trump and he just, Jorge Ramos interrupts him, tries to disrupt his, he says, get out of here. You know, and Mexico is sending people here deliberately to win remittances, 30 or 40 billion a year, and to leave the possible dissidents. And what, and what does Trump say? You know, he said, "I'm, I'm going to make him pay for the fence," and everybody makes fun of that. But hey, if we put a t- slapped a 10% sur- surcharge on all remittances if by anybody who was here illegally, you would get up, you would get about three to five billion dollars a year to pay for the fence. So that's where it, why he resonates, and I I know, I know a lot of people who are for him, and I wish they would channel their anger somewhere else in a more constructive fashion. But so far, the Republicans have sort of made fun of Trump.
0: And then by extension, they're making fun of his supporters and that's a big mistake. The people who make fun of him or the people who sort of clutch their pearls at it, it seems like one of the biggest issues all the time is sort of the, the coarseness. That's what a lot of editorial boards sort of react to and this is part of a, a bigger theme that you always see amongst a certain class of pundit, the idea that the lack of – Civility in American politics is this great sort of social cancer. You know, you always yeah. hear the invocation of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill having a drink after hours. Do you uh, do you share that view, or are they overstating that? Is that too romantic? No, system? I don't. I don't. I don't share that view. I'm not a, I'm not upset. I,
1: I I don't like when Trump. Uh, you know, he says some coarse things, but as I wrote, I collate what Obama said. Trump has never got. Uh, in front of a bunch of white people and said, let's punish our enemies at the, at the polls. Trump has never said if if there was a Nicole Simpson trial, I mean, a OJ trial, he would never say Nicole was like the second daughter I never had. Or he never said, Hey, you guys, let's get in their faces. Let's take a, a gun to a knife fight. So, or he didn't say my opponents are like the Iranian theocrats. They're just the same. Or they strap bombs on their vest. So, it's a double standard that we say Trump is uncouth and he's he's gone beyond the pale. But the fact is, the last seven years, Obama has said things about his opponents. And, and I'm not just saying the last seven years. Well, what if Trump said today, uh, you know, Obama's just a typical black person? That's all he is. He's just a typical black. And then what if he said about the inner city, you know, these people just cling to their guns? So you could put everything Obama has said and just change it around and put Trump's name on it and people would be outraged. But the fact of the matter is that train left the station about 20 years ago and all of a sudden to say, well, we have to be civil. The people who were the most uncivil are on the left and they have sort of a any means necessary justify is justified by their noble ends ideology so.
0: There's an interesting quote from your piece here, Victor, regarding all the Republican fears about the kind of president that Trump might make. Quote, at some point, can't Republicans run against what has happened rather than what they fear might happen? We are worrying about aftershocks in the midst of an earthquake hitting 8.9 on the Richter scale. Close quote. Explain what you mean by that. Well, does anybody think that
1: if you elected Jeb Bush, he would be uh, dependable and predictable what he would do on immigration i don't i think he's saying one thing now and he'd go back to the book he wrote and the things he said that he's basically an open borders guy does anybody believe that trump would be you know any worse than hillary do you, we don't know what hillary's gonna do she he's all over the place and i don't think obama ran on the the platform that I want to double. If I'm now Obama speaking, I want to double the national debt. I want to destroy health care, and I want to get it passed without a single Republican vote. Or I want to get cap and trade oh, push that through. Or I want to basically render federal immigration law null and void. So I mean, I wish Trump was more was more candid, more comprehensive. He had position papers, but. Again, it's a little late to apply a standard to him that you don't apply to the other candidates and Well, that's what I'm kind of upset about um every candidate is a sort of a blank until you they're in president, and they always surprise and Trump will be that as well, although I do think he'll be much more liberal than people think but um, no more so no more unpredictably so than anybody else.
0: There's no question that a lot of Trump's popularity stems from his his derision, his ridicule of elites. That, that's not exactly a new trick in American politics. But how much of the resonance of that message owes to the fact that he is saying these things while coming from amongst their ranks?
1: Well, he, yeah, he he turned the idea of a limousine liberal on its head. Teddy Kennedy or John Kerry or Al Gore or the Clintons or Barack Obama, don't mention their elite one percent status. Hillary, you know, talks like she gets that fake accent and the southern uh, patois, and then she talks like she's a uh, Annie Oakley with the guns, and she doesn't say that you know they're worth over hundred million dollars, or somehow Chelsea, after working for a hedge fund, is worth fifteen million dollars. But Trump is a little different. He says, "I'm an elite." And I know how corrupt they are because I'm corrupt too. <laughs> and when Rand, you know, when Rand Paul tore into him, he said, hey, I gave you money. And, so, and he's right. right. Rand Paul said, no, you didn't give me money. He admitted it. And so Trump is basically telling his supporters, look, you guys, this thing is totally corrupt. Nobody believes in anything. I'm a guy in New York that survived by giving money to everybody. But because I've done that and I know how this corrupt world works, you don't have any illusions that I'm going to uh you know, be a hypocrite. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the tools of the elite to smash the elite. I'm your elite guy, your elite fighter. And that's a very little that's very different than the, the liberal counterpart of, you know. The Kennedys or something. So it's quite new what he's done. It's more like Ross Perot being a, a, a billionaire and then running on a populist, but even more overt because he's deliberately sort of saying, I'm an amoral person. You know, that's, that's the subtext of what Trump says. I'm amoral because we live in an amoral world. And if you live in a jungle, don't think that you don't live in a jungle. Get a guy who knows how to
0: defeat the jungle. That's me. And and one of the things that seems to have changed in the quarter century or so since we had a Rosborough, we've always, of course, had in some sense of the phrase a ruling class in America. But you point out in your piece, it it feels very arthritic right now. It feels sort of notionally powerful but functionally incompetent. Do you do you have a sense of how we got here? How our elites kind of came to this crisis of legitimacy? Well, I think. In some ways, it was uh,
1: globalization created a level of wealth uh, that we'd never seen before. So we've never seen anybody like Mark Zuckerberg or this Silicon Valley or Warren Buffett or George Soros. So there was a lot of money and most of it's on the left. So we've created this new class of people who basically say – I want to fundamentally transform America, but they're not John L. Lewis or they're not Harry Truman. They're very wealthy people, partly from government and partly from globalization. And their uh, motto is basically that consequences of my ideology will never apply to me and my family. And that makes people very, very angry. So when they get a lesson. They get a lecture from Obama on race, or education, or poverty, and they see his kids at Sidwell Friends, or John Kerry shakes his finger at them about global warming and gets on a private jet, as does Al Gore. Or we need higher taxes, and Kerry tries to shuffle his his yacht around so he doesn't have to pay property tax from state to state, or Al Gore drops off a failed cable news thing, uh, news station to Al Jazeera. The product of Qatar that its revenues are based on carbon sales, carbon fuels. And people just say, you know what? These, these people are hypocrites. They're corrupt. And then we look at government. Look at government under Obama. It's an alphabet soup of corruption. The VA, corrupt. The GSA, corrupt. The Secret Service, either corrupt or incompetent. NASA, primary mission is Muslim outreach, can't even get a rocket into space. EPA, Lisa Jackson with her phony email records, corrupt, State Department trying to hide Hillary's email. They look at all these agencies and they say, you know what? IRS is corrupt. They're all corrupt. And they have something that – they're angry and it's a very dangerous time in American history because that's how you get a demagogue. Trump is a demagogue and usually that doesn't end
0: well. So the last question I'll put to you then, sort of the other end of that equation, let's say for a moment that the Republican presidential nominee ends up becoming somebody utterly conventional. Uh, We could could use Jeb Bush as an example, although right now that feels very much like a thought experiment. (laughs) But even even say maybe a Marco Rubio. If you get somebody like that and they attempt to proceed with this like it's business as usual and sort of ignore what has happened with the base of support for Trump, what happens then?
1: Well, I think that will be the – end. I mean I don't want to be apocalyptic but I think that people will just isolate and insulate themselves. They won't participate much anymore because if they elect, say, Marco Rubio who's actually a Tea Party guy but now he's been dubbed the establishment candidate and he goes to Washington and the first thing he does is grant amnesty. The second thing he does is pass a $600 billion deficit budget and the next thing he does after that is he trims and you know sort of talks and huffs and puffs about obamacare then they're going to get they're going to be killed in the midterm elections and there's not going to be an alternative to progressivism because people just aren't going to participate i'm kind of worried right now because when i travel the country there's entire places that have completely dropped out of the american experience culturally they don't go to the movies they just avoid big cities. They don't, they wouldn't be caught dead in, you know, Baltimore, Detroit or Chicago, Atlanta. They don't uh, watch basketball, football. Everybody talks about Super Bowl, but there's a large minority of Americans that are just, I don't don't know if they're Romney's missing 4 million that supposedly didn't vote, but there's a lot of people who don't like what's going on in the country and they're very angry and the elites keep making fun of them and as if they're, you know, duck dynasty hordes or something, but they've turned they've tuned out and this is kind of their last hurrah to get back in.
0: All right. All topics that I'm sure we're gonna be returning to. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classes Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon for Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution. I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.